Uh, if you like these sort of things, then we have a, a handout for you uh, to follow uh, this evening as uh, you see where I'm going to go in the next 20 minutes and um, uh, do grab hold of that um, so that you'll have some idea where we're at. Uh, grab hold two of a Bible, if you will, and uh, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9, page 1222, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 9. Over the uh, last couple of weeks, we've been taking a look at serious spiritual diseases. Uh, Swine flu is not one of them, but we have uh, seen some pretty dangerous, spiritually life-threatening diseases over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Last week, if you were here in the evening, we saw gangrene. Uh, A couple of weeks before that, it was hard-heartedness. And compared to those two, this week's complaints might at first sight seem quite mild. Myopia and amnesia, short-sightedness and forgetfulness. Yeah, okay, yeah. We, uh, we find them in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9. Do you see it there? If anyone does not have these qualities that Peter had just been writing about, if anyone does not have them, he is short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. Short-sighted and forgetful. I guess it's only when you suffer from those sort of, uh, uh, as it were, physical conditions that you know how debilitating they can be. Now let me tell you, it is, it is really frustrating not to be able to see anything without this face furniture. Uh, and when I uh, think back to one of my grandparents and how he was unable to remember things, I can tell you that memory loss can be thoroughly incapacitating. But physically, neither myopia nor amnesia are life-threatening. Frustrating, annoying, embarrassing, but not life-threatening. And now, because of that, please don't be lulled into a false sense of security this evening. Don't think that what we're talking about isn't quite as important as the other stuff that we've been seeing in the last weeks. In the spiritual disease department, myopia and amnesia are as life-threatening as gangrene and hard-heartedness any day. We see just how spiritually dangerous these diseases are when we look at what Peter says in verse 11 of 2 Peter 1. I'll read from verse 10. He says, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and elections sure, for if you do these things, that is, the these things of verses 5 to 8, if you do these things, you'll never fall and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Now, now what's going on here? Peter is saying when our sight and our memory is good, when we're living as we should, verse 10, we can be sure of our calling and election, verse 11. The point is this, spiritual sight and good memory stops you from throwing away eternal life. And so by implication, the danger of spiritual myopia and amnesia is obvious. They can rob you of eternal life. These diseases are life Uh, eternal life-threatening. One of the saddest things that I've experienced in the Christian life uh, and also as as a pastor is to see people throw away eternal life. Uh, When I was at theological college, I think of a married man training for the ordained Anglican ministry who had an affair with a single student at college. Uh, It all came out into the open uh, and... um, uh, the affair ended with the man, uh, with the man sort of ending the uh, the relationship and trying to start again with his wife, 
And uh, that was great that he did that. But, you know, a couple of years later, he had completely given up the Christian life. He threw away eternal life. I think of a girl from a previous church that I was, uh, uh, I was a pastor in. Uh, she was fully involved in the life of the church. She started going out with an unbeliever against all the advice of her peers and of the leadership. She ended up marrying him, saying all the time, oh, I'll keep strong, I'll keep following Jesus. Although, frankly, even when she started to go out with him, you could see that her, her Christian life was starting to wane and drift. And now she is nowhere spiritually. She doesn't believe anything. She has thrown away eternal life. And sadly, as I was preparing this, I didn't have to rack my brains to recall those stories. I could tell you of others like them. There's so many. And when I think of these people, I feel so sad. But you know, when I think of them coming face to face with Jesus Christ and being led off to spend all eternity in darkest destruction, I feel devastation. Eternal life really matters. And the spiritual diseases we're considering this evening are eternal life-threatening. In the spiritual arena, both these diseases, myopia amnesia, are like swine flu. They are contagious and they are caught from false teaching. Uh, That is what this book is all about, really. Uh, Let's take a look at them. Firstly, myopia, uh, uh, short-sightedness, as you see. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, You will tell from... Uh, the face furniture that I wear, that uh, I can't see things in the distance. Indeed, as soon as I uh, take these uh, glasses off, um, all I can see in front of me is sort of a, a, a sweaty mass of flesh. I'm sorry, you're not that sweaty, but a mass of flesh and uh, hair and, and cloth. But it's sort of all, there's some colours out there, but it's all merging into one. I can't make out any detail. I, I can't see Andrew's face. Maybe I'll leave them off, actually. <laughs> sorry. Short-sightedness, not being able to see things uh, in the distance. Now, likewise, the spiritually short-sighted can't see things in the distance. And one particular thing, the return of Christ. You see, Peter wrote this letter because false teachers had come into the churches in Asia Minor and one of their biggest heresies, they had a number, but one of their biggest heresies was the denial of the return of Jesus Christ. The false teachers didn't believe it was going to happen. Uh, Flip over to chapter 3 and verse 3 and you'll see this very clearly. As they looked ahead, they didn't have their spiritual glasses on and they didn't believe Jesus was going to return. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. First of all, he said, you must understand that in the last days, and incidentally the last days in the Bible are the days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and his return to this earth. So all the time since Jesus Uh, rose from the dead and then returned uh, to sit at the right hand of the Father and before he then returns again in the Bible is called the last days. So, verse 3, first of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. They didn't believe in the return of the second coming of Christ, or or if you want what the theologians call it, it's the parousia. Now now look, uh, we'll look at this in a bit more detail, but just so we're all clear, the return of Christ will be unmissable. You won't need an eye player to watch it if you're out when it happened. Uh, It really will be unmissable. 
Uh, turn back with me to, to, uh, to Matthew chapter 24. Keep your uh, finger in two, Peter. We're going to come back there. But just so that we know what we're talking about when we're talking about the return of Christ, uh, come back with me to Matthew 24, page 993, the second of the two readings that Kate read for us um, a little bit earlier in the service. Matthew 24 and verse 29. And see that it really will be unmissable when Jesus returns. See, Matthew 24, verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, do you see, this is described in the end of the world as we know it. Do you see it there? The sun darkens, stars falling from the sky. It's not going to be a man-made catastrophe. The end of the world is not going to be the result of global warming or a nuclear holocaust. The end of the world will be determined by Christ and put into effect as he returns, down through the clouds. Note verse 30, Jesus' return will be visible and physical. He will appear in the sky, on the clouds. It will be unmissable. And crucially, verse 30, do you see the response of the nations of the world? They will mourn. We Christians are going to be rejoicing. What a day when Jesus finally returns to rescue us, to reconstitute the universe, to lock away all evil and and in judgment to put all wrongs right. It's going to be a fantastic day. We'll rejoice in that day. But the nations of the earth will mourn. Why? Because this will be the death of all who do not follow Jesus Christ. Eternal death. Judgment will come upon them for rejecting the Son of Man. Judgment will come upon them for living without acknowledging Christ as Lord and as God. Now that's what we're talking about as we turn back to 2 Peter Peter chapter 3. We're talking about that awesome final day of judgment and it was being flatly denied by people then and has been since. Indeed, that is Peter's point. In the last days, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 3, scoffers will come. Now, you see, the strange thing is Jesus had clearly taught that it would happen. Now, do you see how arrogant it is of people to think that they know better than Jesus? If somebody says to you, oh, that's never going to happen, people are being thoroughly arrogant when Jesus, the Lord of all, has said it is going to happen. Now, of course, Peter wrote within a generation of the death of Christ and people were doubting that Jesus would return then. It's no surprise then, after 2,000 years of no-show from Jesus, people definitely doubt the return of Christ today. These scoffers, as people calls them, are rife. And boy, do they love scoffing. Now, when I was uh, ordained uh, on my ordination retreat, so with other people who were going to be ordained into the Church of England... Uh, We uh, talked about all sorts of things, but I can still remember on the morning of our ordination as we were having breakfast, something came up about something in judgment and I talked about the fact that I believed Jesus was going to return and uh, a number of them round the table looked at me laughing and said, you don't believe that, do you? How naive. See, there they were scoffing at my belief. It wasn't long after that, but once I was ordained, I went to my first chapter meeting, the gathering of clergy in the area. 
I was introduced as the new boy on the block, asked to give a little testimony of how I came to be ordained. I told them how I became a Christian and and mentioned the joy of knowing that I wouldn't have to face the the day of judgment. And one of the eldest members of the group, a clergyman, said in front of the rest of the clergy there, putting me down, don't tell me that they're still teaching that at theological college. How immature and and how unsophisticated. We haven't believed in judgment and the devil for many years, he says. There he was, scoffing at the return of Jesus. See, it's rife in leaders in the church today. Uh, You'll hear it expressed in the way people describe the character of God. If they don't attack the return of Christ quite that way, they'll say it like this, God is love. God is love. He's not going to judge anyone. There'll be no day of judgment. Now that is the heart at the heart of spiritual short-sightedness. Not being able to see the return of Jesus. It's as if they've taken off their spiritual glasses. Not being able to see that there will be a day of judgment. And you see, when I've taken off my spiritual glasses, when I can't see that day in the future, when I don't believe it anymore, it affects the way I live now. See, here's the logic. If Jesus isn't going to return, if there isn't going to be a judgment day, if there is never going to be a day of reckoning when I'm going to stand face to face with Christ, in front of Christ as Lord and Judge, if that is not going to happen, then does it matter how I live? In recent years, we've seen evil dictators taken before the European law lords for war crimes for the atrocities that went on in the war in Bosnia, for example, the ethnic cleansing, as they called it, the systematic murder of thousands of people based on their racial, cultural and and tribal heritage. Why do you think these monsters did what they did? They did it because they never thought they'd be caught. Because it didn't cross their minds that they would have to give account for their actions. Because they thought they could sort of not only bury the people, but bury the evidence. See, as soon as you remove the belief in future judgment, it removes any overarching control of the way we live. But we've seen it. Jesus will return. And there will be consequences for our actions. You see, we may like to think that we're through with the past, but Jesus says the past isn't through with you, with me. We will have to face Jesus as judge. And and it's fantastic, there could be no better judge than Jesus. He, after all, is God and Lord of all. Therefore, he is in full possession of all the facts about us. He knows how it really is. But look, the big point is this. The thought of Jesus should return should regulate the way I live. And you see, that is the logic that Peter employs. Peter says, despite what the scoffers say, Jesus will return. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will come. See, as Meg Ryan discovers in City of Angels, some things are true whether you believe them or not, she says. Scoffers are going to have a terrible shock coming to them. So chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus is going to return. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Do you see Peter's logic? The return of Christ and the judgment of Christ should motivate me to live a holy life now because I'm going to have to face him one day. And he's going to be in full possession of all the facts of my life. 
In case we didn't get it, Peter uh, um, repeats the logic uh, as, as we read on. Verse 11, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, the day that will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will meet, melt in a heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. Do you see the logic? Jesus is going to return. There is going to be a day of judgment, so live a godly life. Now, I wonder, is that true for you? It is for me. Doesn't the thought that you are going to stand before Judge Jesus make you think twice before you act in ways that are contrary to his law? Certainly the case for me, thinking of Jesus' return has been a huge help and incentive to live a holy life when I've been tempted not to. It's been helpful for me too when it's come to pastoral situations. Think of a fellow who'd been involved in an adulterous affair. His wife had discovered it. I went round to see them. The house was shrouded in silence. He seemed impervious to any words of wisdom. And so having sat there for probably an hour, sometimes in silence, sometimes talking to him, trying to gently encourage him to end the affair. I I got absolutely nowhere. So I reminded him that he would have to meet Jesus one day, that he would meet Jesus in all his power and splendour, that he would have to stand before Almighty God of the universe. I reminded him that he was in danger of losing eternal life. Let me tell you, it was the only thing that got through to him that day. But the point is this, if you don't believe in Judgment Day, what will stop you from living an ungodly life? And you see, that is exactly how the false teachers in 2 Peter carried on. They denied the return of Christ, and as a result, they lived thoroughly ungodly and unholy lives. Just turn back to chapter 2 and verse 13 and see how Peter writes of them. Now bear in mind, as we come to chapter 2, he's writing about... Leaders in the Christian church. That's what's so shocking. Chapter 2, verse 13. Halfway through verse 13. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, revelling in their pleasure while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the stable, the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. Isn't that a shocking description? It's a shocking description of anybody when you think that this is written about church leaders. And you notice it's a description with strong sexual overtones. Verse 14, eyes full of adultery, they seduce the unstable. Verse 13, their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. Again, it's far too contemporary, isn't it? Happening in the church today. Leaders in the church are openly ignoring the Lord's teaching on sexual ethics. In broad daylight, with no sense of shame, living with people who are not their spouse. Well, they continue in church leadership because they don't believe in judgment. Do you see the danger of spiritual short-sightedness? If you stop believing in the return of Christ, if you stop seeing the return of Christ on the horizon, if there is no judgment to come, there'll be nothing to regulate the way we live. Live as you like. There are no consequences. But before we leave this point, notice what a disaster it will be 
if you live that way, when you do come face to face with Jesus. See, what a shock for the false teachers in the church today when judgment day comes. The judgment day they're scoffing about. What a shock. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Peter says, there were false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. He's looking back to the Old Testament when he starts this. There were false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them bringing swift destruction on themselves. A friend was telling me only a couple of weeks ago that he attended a church recently where the preacher said that we should send our children on these atheists' camps. A minister in the Church of England using an Anglican pulpit to encourage us to send our children, our children with impressionable minds, to a place where they will be told that there is no God and there is no judgment. What a disaster! But end of chapter 2, verse 1, by teaching these destructive heresies, they will bring swift destruction on themselves. Now, do you see the point? Spiritual myopia, spiritual short-sightedness is very dangerous. It is spiritually life-threatening. And it is caught from false teaching, so beware of it. Well, from uh, spiritual myopia to spiritual amnesia, forgetfulness. Uh, A bit shorter this time. It is also caught from false teaching. And again, there it is in chapter 1 and verse 9. Again, forgetfulness doesn't seem so bad. It can be a bit of a nuisance, can't it? Forgetting things you ought to do can be inconvenient. Forgetting people's names can be a bit embarrassing. Obviously, when people get serious amnesia, it can be very distressing. It got me thinking, what was the last thing, that, uh, well, the worst thing that I ever forgot? I don't know what the worst thing you ever forgot was. The worst thing I, I ever forgot, well, there's a number of them, but uh, one, of, one of the worst things when I was a little, probably the first worst thing I ever forgot was, uh, uh, was to water the next door neighbour's tomato plants when they went on holiday. It might not seem that big a deal, but I'd been given this one job by the next door neighbours to water their tomato plants, and it was a, a scorching summer. We do have them in England sometimes. A scorching hump summer. I remembered about ten days into their two-week holiday that I was supposed to be watering these plants every day. It's terrible. I was only 14, but still... I rushed round to see how, before they'd gone, they were thriving, these tomato plants. And you know what, they were flat, you know, sort of bone dry, brown. I don't think tomatoes are supposed to go brown. So for the next four days, I watered those plants so much, I just kept watering them, water, probably drowned the poor things. There was no, no resurrection from the dead for those plants. <laughs> I know. What's the worst thing you've ever forgotten? I don't know what it is. I, I, another, I, I forgot to go to a dinner party once. I'd been invited and I just completely forgot. Didn't put it in my diary. Completely forgot. It's about ten days later that people said to me, well, uh, are you okay? I said, yeah, fine, yeah. Did you have a nice weekend? Yeah, lovely, yeah. <laughs> didn't see you the other week. Didn't we? Just, it come, I didn't remember anything. Did, uh, did you not think of coming to dinner? Were you all right? Was I supposed to come to dinner? It was terrible. Terrible. Anyway, I could go on. There's other things. Listen, I don't know what the worst thing you've ever forgotten is. The worst thing a Christian can ever forget is there in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. If anyone does not have these qualities of verses 5 to 8, if anyone does not have them, he's short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Much worse than forgetting the dinner party. 
or the tomato plants, forgetting that you're forgiven. Very easy to forget you're forgiven. So easy to forget how good it is to be forgiven. I remember when I first discovered that I could be forgiven. Such a relief. It was such a relief. still remember it. No guilt in life, no fear in death, as the song puts it. That feeling of being right with God, the past wiped clean, all my sin gone, it was fantastic. My relationship with God restored, it was absolutely amazing. The fact that, that in the future I didn't have to face judgment, I would be with God for all eternity, it was just phenomenal. I couldn't believe it, and yet I did believe it. I was so relieved. I'd have done anything for Jesus, gone anywhere for him, given him any time. That was back in 1983. I can still remember driving, I used to do quite a lot of driving in my job, driving around with this permanent grin on my face. I'm forgiven. I'm right with God. I'm going to spend all eternity with him. Now I'm kind of used to it. I'm used to being forgiven. I've been forgiven for a long time now. I've got used to the idea that I'm right with God. Got used to the idea of spending all eternity with Jesus. I'm still excited about it, but got used to it. I've got used to the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for me. I've taken communion many, many times. I can do it without thinking very much about it, really. I can take bread and wine without recalling what it cost Jesus, without thinking of the agony of being on the cross, not just physical agony, the spiritual agony of being separated from his Father. See, you see, it's easy to get used to it, to kind of forget how good it is to, to feel right with God. I mean, I am right with God, but just to forget how good that is. And I reckon that's the moment when it's very, very dangerous. Because when I forget how good it is, because I've just got used to it, I can look at others, at unbelievers, and I can think I'd quite like to have a slice of what they've got. Because, see, I've forgotten how good it is to be a Christian. I've forgotten how bad it was to be guilty, to feel guilty and separated from God and to have no eternal future. And when I've forgotten that, what it is to be cleansed from past sin, current sin seems very attractive. You know that thing? Now again, that is exactly what has happened to the false teachers in the church that Peter is writing to. Look how Peter writes in in chapter 2, verse 20. Again, it's shocking when you realise these are leaders in the church he's writing to. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. If they've escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. It's a very remarkable thing to say, isn't it? Verse 21, it's better that they hadn't known forgiveness in the first place. Verse 20, to have turned away from Jesus, having known him, you are worse off than if you'd never turned to him in the first place. How does that work? You see, I've met people like this. People who did know the joy of forgiveness, who really did seem to know God, but now, been entangled in a life of sin, now Jesus doesn't play any part in their life. And it is very, very hard to help people like that. To help them to return to Jesus. Do you know why? 
Because when you tell them the gospel, when you tell them about Jesus' death on the cross for them, when you tell them they can be forgiven, it rolls off them like water off a duck's back. Because they know it all. Heard it all before. It's not news to them. Then the gospel doesn't grab them. It doesn't have the impact that it, that it once had that, it had, that it has on somebody who's never ever heard the gospel. Do you see? It's almost worse turning away because there's only one message. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. Tried that. I think it's one of the big dangers of being brought up in a Christian home and being part of a good Christian youth group. Let me say, I think it's a great privilege. There, it's far more a privilege than a danger to be brought up in a Christian home and be part of a great Christian youth group. Far more a privilege than a danger. But if there is a danger, I think this might be it. By the time you leave home, go off to university or, or, or start your own job or whatever, first job, whatever it is, by the time you do that, you've heard the gospel hundreds of times. You've grown up knowing what it is to be forgiven. You've almost forgotten what it is to be forgiven. Being forgiven is just kind of normal now. See, it's just what you got used to. Fantastic, great thing to get used to. But when you're at uni or, or on your first job or whatever, the enticement of a life apart from Jesus comes flooding in and rather be thankful for your forgiveness, you look at the excitement of sin, you see. Beware when you lose the excitement of forgiveness. Beware playing with sin. For we are in a worse position when we turn to sin as believers. For then the gospel that ought to bring us back to Christ has not the same impact on us. That is what I think it is to forget that you've been cleansed from your sin, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 9. And so just like spiritual myopia, spiritual amnesia, forgetfulness, means that I'll easily sin. I'll become entangled in sin. And that is spiritually life-threatening. Well, as I close, the, the cure for these spiritual ailments are to strive for godliness. We've had short-sightedness, forgetfulness, and now, now godliness. Strive for godliness. That is actually the context of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. See, if you look at chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, this is how it works. I'll read from verse 5. For this reason... Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone doesn't have them, he's short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past. Now, do you see how that works? If you are making the effort to add the qualities of verses 5 to 8 to your life, then you are demonstrating that you have good spiritual eyesight and a good spiritual memory. But, verse 9, if you don't, your eyesight has gone and your memory has gone. The point is this, keeping our eyes on the future return of Christ and looking back, remembering the death of Christ, will always motivate us to live a godly life for Christ. So strive for godliness. If you're striving for godliness, it is a great sign that you haven't lost your sight of the future or your memory of the past. I imagine the bane of all GPs' lives are hypochondriacs. Well, look, I reckon the bane of all pastors' lives is the opposite, those who think they're very well. It's funny, isn't it? If you think you're spiritually well, you'll never turn to Christ in the first place. 
So I don't know about you, Andrew, but I spend most of my life trying to persuade people that they are spiritually sick. They think they're well, and I'm trying to tell them they're sinners. Because Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Unless you realise you're a sinner, spiritually sick, you'll never turn to Dr. Jesus. So I spend my life trying to persuade people that they're sick. All the doctors here hate it when people think they're ill and uh, when they're not. I hate it when people think they're well, when, they, when they're not. Uh, and I have to do the opposite. But the same is true for Christians. If we think that we are not in danger of spiritual myopia and amnesia, we are in a very perilous situation. Now, I don't want to create spiritual hypochondriacs, but I want to give you the advice that medics give to men and women all the time. Examine yourselves. Women, you are told to examine yourselves for breast cancer regularly. Will you do that, please? For the sake of the medics here, I'm doing your job for you now. Men, we are told to examine ourselves for testicular cancer. We do it in the shower, and you know how that goes. <laughs> this is the point. Christians should examine themselves for spiritual myopia and spiritual amnesia. It is that important. I know I've made a joke of it. It is very important. How do we do that? Three diagnostic questions as we close. They're on the, on the handout. And I'm just going to read the three questions. Here's the first one. This is how you examine yourself for these diseases. Are you making the effort to add to your life the qualities of verses 5 to 7? Do you believe in the return and judgment of Christ? Do you rejoice in the forgiveness that is yours in Christ? If your answer is yes to those questions, your spiritual eyesight and your spiritual memory are in very good shape. If your answer is no to any of those questions, you need to seek spiritual help immediately because you are probably on the verge of or have a spiritually life-threatening complaint right now. Do not delay. Let's pray together.